Hello and welcome to the Pondering Primates podcast, the official podcast of the University of Edinburgh Atheist, Humanist and Secularist Society. My name is Daniel Sharp, I'm the president of that society and your usual host. The podcast is a veritable cornucopia. We have different guests on each episode to discuss a range of issues from religion and secularism to film, art and literature. If you want to contribute then do get in touch. Our social media and contact details can be found on the Anchor page, but we're easily found by searching our name on Facebook, and our Twitter handle is at UOEAthumSakeSock. So, with all that out of the way, are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hello and welcome to The Pondering Primates, it's Daniel here. Uh, Today I'm going to speak to Professor Christopher French. Um, before he does a talk, a Halloween special on ghosts and the psychology behind ghost belief. Uh, but before that, we are gonna, I'm going to ask him a few questions. Um, so shall, I'll just ask you to kind of quickly introduce yourself. Sure, yeah. Um, your um, work and, and what, what exactly is anomalistic psychology? That's the first question <laughs> that people always ask. Uh, so yeah, I'm Professor Chris French. I'm head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths, University of London. Uh, and as I say precisely, people <laughs> say, what the heck is anomalistic psychology? Or sometimes they use other words. Um, uh, basically, anomalistic psychology is primarily focused on seeing whether we can come up with and then test, preferably, uh, explanations for ostensibly paranormal experiences but without invoking paranormal forces mm. or phenomena. So in other words, can we come up with psychological explanations mm. for the weird experiences that people definitely do have, <coughs> uh, but maybe they're not best explained in paranormal terms? Yeah. Uh, which brings me on to my second question. Uh, do ghosts exist? <laughs> uh, I think we're both probably don't think they do. Don't think um, they do, but again, I think one part of being a good sceptic in is, my mind yeah. is being open to the possibility yeah, you might yeah. be wrong. Um, Falsifiable exactly. beliefs that should always yeah. be. Yeah. I mean, if new evidence came along, mm. I, could maybe, I would maybe change my mind, but at the base, on the basis of the evidence as I currently see it, I mm. think that the non-paranormal explanations mm. offer pretty good explanations for mm. those kinds of experiences that people have where they think they've had a ghostly encounter. Mm. So what are the main kind of psychological forces at work behind ghost belief? Okay, there's, I mean, there's, there are a lot of different I, yeah. ones, and obviously I'll be doing a kind of mm. talk of an hour like plus a, a bill, in a, a little bit, but a bullet point <laughs> list. Uh, amongst the kind of really important factors are things like Uh, Well, on the one hand, you've got the kind of um, emotional, motivational side of things Mm. that, uh, I mean, a belief in ghosts is really just kind of one part of a general belief in Mm. some form of life after death. And I think most people would like to believe in Mm. some form of life after death. We don't like the idea that when we die, that's the end of us, and Mm. particularly maybe when our loved ones die, Mm. that's the end of them. Um, And so... If we can, anything that we really want to believe in, the evidence doesn't have to be that great to convince us it's true. And so if you believe in life after death, then that opens up the possibility that maybe sometimes spirits, souls Mm. remain on the earth plane and Mm. don't move on to to wherever they're supposed to go to. So that's kind of one important factor. Then there are other things like 
I mean, in terms of the big, I think that maybe the two biggest psychological factors would be pre-existing belief. If you believe in ghosts, you're more likely to think you've had a ghostly encounter. Mm. Um, and also context. Yeah, I mean, the kind of thing that you've no doubt experienced it yourself if you in a, a, a hotel or a, or, a, or a pub or something and suddenly people say, oh, it's supposed to be haunted. Yeah. Then <laughs> things that would normally not catch your attention do, so creaking floorboards mm. and all this kind of stuff, you know. <gasps> is that, you know? And, and so context is really mm. important as well. Now, I will be talking in the talk about a range of other phenomena. I mean, one of the things I'm fascinated with is something called sleep paralysis, mm. which is a very common experience in its most basic form but in its more kind of um, vivid, florid form, uh, involves kind of really terrifying hallucinations. And it's a surprisingly common phenomenon. So you see why a lot of people who have mm. that will think, oh, I've, I've yeah. seen a ghost. Um, and there are other kind of more kind of esoteric theories that I will mention, but mm. I will, yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced by them. There's a lot of ideas out there, but certainly uh, I think, you know, I mean, the other, the other big factor, I think, is... Um, <coughs> the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. Mm. You know, the, the fact that we very often, when we th report what we think we've seen, we add things in. Mm. Not, not, not deliberately, not lying, but it's just part of the yeah. way human memory works. I was, I was gonna, when you mentioned the haunted pubs, there's a pub in Edinburgh. Uh, which is apparently the most haunted uh, pub. <laughs> there, are, there, are, uh, there are lots of most haunted pubs, <laughs> yeah. apparently. Yeah. I mean, I've never there, been there. I've only been there. It's kind of a nightclub come pub, come karaoke dance floor. Right. Uh, so I don't think people really tend to have paranormal experiences unless they're really drunk. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Which may actually be part of the explanation. So what is the... Do you think it's a dangerous... Is it just interesting to study these kind of weird beliefs or do you think there's something pernicious to supernatural beliefs? I think... Sometimes is the short answer, mm. but not always. Um, I mean, the, the... There is obviously... I mean, just the very <coughs> fact... I mean, as a kid, I, 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 I believed in quite a lot of paranormal stuff up until early mm. adulthood. And as a kid, I was absolutely terrified of ghosts. Mm. You know, I hated being on my own in the dark. It, 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 it freaked me out totally. And that's true for lots of people, you know, including not just children, but, you mm. know, adults as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, clearly that's a negative thing if, uh, if you're going to have people suffering from that kind of stress uh, for, for kind of no good reason. But um, the, 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 as I say, there's also the other side of it. There are, there are also people who actually genuinely are fascinated by the mm. idea of ghosts. I mean, clearly that it's a kind of, it's a great theme in literature. Mm. Uh, it's a fantastic thing for kind of fiction, for dramas and so on. Um, and it is kind of just the flip side, in a sense, the kind of dark flip side of our mm. desire, as I said before, to believe in life after death. Yeah. Um, and some, a lot of these kind of paranormal um, investigation groups, these amateurs who mm. go in with all their equipment and so on. I mean, they, they think it's great. They love it. And yeah. people pay to go on ghost tours. I mean, Edinburgh's <laughs> famous yeah. for it, you know. Um, <coughs> so I don't think it's all bad, but it can be. And of mm. course, there, there are other aspects to it where of maybe moving beyond just the simple, straightforward idea of ghosts, but ideas about possession and exorcism. Mm. I think you get into a much darker realm there where real damage can be mm. done. I suppose the kind of Maybe not so much silly beliefs in ghosts or star signs or whatever, but the underlying kind of principle behind that is a very unscientific, un 
uh, sort of critical thinking can well, well, exactly, add that's to it. And it can, I mean, and I, and I think that's probably where the kind of, in the bigger picture, that's where the kind of danger yeah. lies. That if you believe in those kind of things, then you might also be open to believing in other things mm. that that do carry more mm. dangers. Those um, who make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, and I think that is so true. Yeah. yeah. So what what do you think? Do you believe that the public? should engage more with science and with these critical thinking tools that well, science and yeah. philosophy I mean, provide. I would, wouldn't I? Yeah. You know, especially <laughs> as we're here in David Hume Tower, yeah. you know, I mean, this is like, you know, uh, the place to, to, to be a sceptic. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, I mean, again, widening it out much beyond just the topic of ghosts. Mm. Uh, I mean, the whole kind of sceptical movement, which has... I suppose been going now for you know since at least the seven, 1970s mm. in a relatively organised form. We've always known about mm. fake news. Yeah. <laughs> We've yeah. always known <laughs> about this stuff. It's always been there. It's just it's never been so much part of the mainstream mm. as it is now, thanks to Donald Trump and mm. Brexit and all these mm -hmm. other things. Uh, and it is deeply worrying that yeah. uh, a lot of this kind of stuff that gets thrown out there. It's uh, kind of sometimes it's you know unintentional but a lot of the time it's deliberate fake news mm. and it's just kind of making you get to a point it's not so much necessarily that people end up believing everything they hear mm. but they just don't know who mm. or what to believe and that yeah. is a real danger you have to didn't carol sagan have a sort of toolkit exactly uh, of, yeah of, of, of critical thinking tools yeah yeah i, I mean, think it's all part of the kind of the same sort of uh debate or discussion that we have to have about how to think properly and how to how to you know sort out the wheat from the chaff well that's exactly that. it yeah it's not i mean yeah for me it's not about telling people what to, yeah, to think yeah. it's more about <clears throat> trying to give them the tools <clears throat> to help them make their own minds up on <clears throat> a reasonable basis i mean even with something like say conspiracy <clears throat> theories <clears throat> You might, on the surface, think, well, surely the conspiracy theorists are the sceptics. They're the ones who don't believe yeah. the official <laughs> account. And I kind of often kind of refer to them as kind of being sceptics, but without the critical thinking skills. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, they're questioning things, which is a good thing, mm -hmm. but then they don't really know how to kind of evaluate the evidence to, yeah. to come to what seems to be yeah. a reasonable conclusion. Well, that, that's what you said about uh, having, leaving the sort of door open to, to, exactly. to proof of these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, famously, James Randi... Uh, set up that uh, million dollar prize. The million dollar challenge, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Nobody ever won it. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, I mean, to be, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the James Randi Educational Foundation and uh, the, the whole the whole challenge. Um, they insist that before you can go for the formal one million dollar mm. challenge, you have to pass a preliminary test carried mm. out, set up by somebody that they know and trust. Mm. And so we've been involved in kind of various. Mm. Uh, of these preliminary tests, and of course, they never get past the preliminary <laughs> test if it's properly designed. So JREF don't need to do anything, you know. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a very good way. The fact that there are so many psychics around the world who claim you know 100 accuracy and amazing powers, this should be really easy to demonstrate. Mm. And yet, clearly, especially with that incentive. Not. Well, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they say, oh, well, we wouldn't do it just for the money. Well, give the money to charity. There yeah. are a lot of good causes out there. Yeah. You know. So just to finish off very quickly, uh -huh. uh, a nice simple question: What is your, seeing as it's Halloween or nearly <laughs> Halloween, what is your favourite horror movie? Oh, right. Good question. I mean, amazingly, people think I'll be really, really into horror movies. And actually, I'm not that much. But I do, I do actually uh, occasionally indulge. 
Um, so what would be my very, my very favourite? Um, I went to the Stanley Kubrick exhibition in mm-hmm. London recently, and mm-hmm. I'd never actually got around to watching The Shining from start oh, really? to finish. <laughs> so I made a made a special point of watching that. Um, There's a sequel can, coming out this year, I think. Yes, indeed, <laughs> there is. I can remember as a teenager going to see The Exorcist, mm. and at that point, I really didn't want to go. It was peer pressure that made me go, mm. and I really wished I hadn't, because in me, it reawakened mm. all those childhood fears I used to have, and yeah. it really freaked me out for a while. <coughs> It'd be interesting to watch it again now, because mm. you know whether I would just... <laughs> my, my wife says that when she went to watch it, before, just before we ever met, she, she just thought it was hilarious. It just made her laugh from start to finish. Didn't have that effect on me, so I'll maybe give that one a whirl as well. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of, yeah. I, I have no problem with the paranormal in fiction yeah. because it's fiction. Yeah. You know, yeah. And uh, that's fine. Yeah. But as long as people realise it's not real. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, I think uh, we shall take our little break. Okay. And, uh, thank you very much for talking to me for a little while. That's my uh, pleasure. We'll be back after Chris has done his talk and. We'll record the Q&A. Okay, uh, great. So thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to the podcast after we've just had our talk from Christopher French, which is very interesting, and now we're going to have a Q&A, so I shall be a roving mic and hand it over to whoever uh, wants to ask a question. Um, hi there. Thanks so much for the talk. It was, it was wonderful. Um, I was wondering... Uh, with the kind of people who witness reporting all sorts of paranormal, paranormal experiences and stuff, what do you feel their approach or take looking back on the events is? Because uh, I feel like in all sorts of TV programs, whether they're kind of playing into this, like haunted houses or whatnot, um, or if they're trying to rebuke them somehow, like the kind of stuff Darren Brown tends to do, just obviously being it's all a trickery, but still. The, his uh, participants playing along feels like it's quite blown up out of blown out of proportion and kind of sensationalist almost, and, and the reactions tend to be quite extreme. Um, I've only ever known a couple people in my life that seem to genuinely believe they've had some sort of weird paranormal experiences, and what I found very strange about it is when they talked about it to me, it was very mundane matter-of-fact conversation uh, it was like talking about something they had for lunch the day before or, so i was wondering what what kind of reports you get when when you interact with people in your experiments right. I, mean, um, I mean i mean one thing to say is that i mean typically it's i don't spend an awful lot of my time actually going to do one-to-one uh-huh. interviews with people who've, who've had these great experiences the one exception to that being people who get in touch with me about sleep paralysis experiences and some of those can be absolutely terrifying but by this point those people have already decided I know this is that thing called sleep paralysis anybody who thinks it's a ghost is not going to get in touch with me they're going to get in touch with a, with a priest or the Society for Psychological Research or somebody else they're not going to come my way I still love getting those first-hand <laughs> reports though I mean the detailed first-hand reports as they can be absolutely terrifying but kind of you, I mean, what you get is a whole range of kind of uh, reports and and reactions, you know. So, um, like I said, most of the time, when, and you're quite right in talking. I mean, most of the time when people talk about the paranormal experiences, it's not really anything very spectacular or sensational. It's I feel like I was in this room and it was really spooky, and uh, I could just tell there was somebody else in there, you know, <laughs> something like that. Um, now. 
it, it all depends what you look at as evidence. You know? Well, uh, the story that comes to mind in particular, someone's told me something that, to me, as, as someone who doesn't believe in those kinds of things, was actually sound pretty terrifying. She said she got called in to her workplace in the middle of the night on some sort of emergency to check some equipment or something. Uh, and she believed that the place was haunted. Some boy had gotten hit by a car right. years before and used to haunt the place. And she said she walked into a room, it felt kind of creepy, she left it, she came back, and in the middle of the floor, there was a pair of soaking wet children's gloves. And I thought, mm. if that happened to me, just for any reason, I mean, that's, that actually sounds like a kind of a, a creepy experience, but it was just the way she reported it, was kind of, oh, you know, yeah, those kinds of things happen. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a fun ghost, we quite like him. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean you do get those people who say, <laughs> I mean, uh, we have, we have a, a basement flat in part of the house that we, that we kind of rent out, and the person, the, the couple who live there, uh, the, the, the woman, I mean, we, she's really sweet, we love her to bits, but she's totally into all these kind of weird ideas. And she has told us, yeah, there are two ghosts, you, you've got two ghosts down there, but it's fine, they're friendly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know she's not, not kind of freaked out about it at all. Equally, you can get people who do get absolutely terrified. I mean, I got a, a letter recently from <coughs> a woman who, uh, about 70, and she'd been having very vivid, I mean, she now realised there were sleep paralysis experiences, but she initially thought she had a ghost. You know, she thought, she, she thought it was, it was, the house was haunted. She was absolutely terrified by it. And then, I mean, amazing, so, no, you so patronising, but for a 70-year-old woman, she was obviously on the internet, and she'd found information about sleep paralysis and realised that's what it was, and that's why she got in touch with me. But what, one of the things that really annoyed me about that was that she'd then gone to see her GP to say, I'm having these sleep paralysis episodes, and the GP had said, never heard of it, and just dismissed her. And I thought, you... <laughs> so I sent her some papers and said, just go, next time you go, hit him around the head with these. You know, it's a real phenomenon, there's a medical and scientific literature on it. Uh, and because he hadn't heard of it, she, she just looked really stupid and, and silly. You know. And so I want to get the word out there, there's this thing called sleep paralysis, and it's scary, but it's, it's not real. Um, there are a lot of websites that will tell you it is spirits, so you be careful which ones you look at. Um, but yeah, people do have a whole range of, of different responses. Some people get freaked out by stuff that seems really, really mild. Um, and other people can talk about stuff that you think, well, that scared me. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, and they're, they're very kind of calm about it. I mean, these paranormal investigation groups typically consist of people who, who are genuinely desperate to find evidence for a ghost, and they would love it if they could get some really strong evidence. And it's not kind of driven by fear in their cases. I mean, they like to tell, retell the stories in a spooky way. But I mean, the other thing is as well, that people have actually looked at the way people use language when they're giving these accounts. And there's a, there are certain kinds of things that you notice. So for example, there's a tendency, nobody ever starts off by saying kind of, everybody else starts off by saying, you know, well, I was the biggest skeptic in the world. And then this happened, you know, and that convinced them. There's no other explanation if it was a ghost story. You know. uh, nobody ever starts off by saying, me, I believe absolutely anything. I'm incredibly <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing is, you know, I was, I was just doing something very ordinary, and then this extraordinary thing happened. So I was just doing the ironing, 
And then I heard this voice say, Carol, you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know. And it's this thing of the, the, the kind of contrast between the normality and this is something that's very out of the ordinary. And also letting your listeners draw the conclusion that it was paranormal. You just say, this is what happened. And I, and I looked for all possible, and that's another thing that the ghost uh, hunters do, we always look for all possible non-paranormal explanations before we decide it was a ghost. No, they don't. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have anything to say about, um, <laughs> about Ouija boards? Um, I haven't ever experienced Ouija boards. Sorry, a Ouija boards? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to, as a student, um, yeah. we used to come back from the pub on a Friday and we used to mess about with Ouija boards. And we did it for purely for entertainment purposes. Look, so kind of half a dozen of us um, students all living in a house together. And the one guy who thought that it was something paranormal would have nothing to do with it, he would just scuttle up to his bedroom and leave us to it. Uh, but Ouija boards, basically, um, the, the, the standard explanation, which I think is the correct one, is it's something called the idiomotor effect, or in less technical language, it's non-conscious muscular movements. You're actually, if you look at the wine glass, you're pushing the wine glass yourself without being consciously aware of it. It's the same kind of effect that explains why people think dancing works, um, there was a there was a, a craze back in the Victorian era of what's called table tilting, and this was again a way of trying to communicate with the spirits. They'd have a small round wooden, typically a small round wooden table. They'd put their hands on it and they'd ask questions to the spirits. And if the spirits were responsive, the table would start to move, and they would interpret this as being the spirits answering their questions. And on a really good session you could end up with a situation where they were kind of chasing the table around, you know, the table's moving all over the place. And why this has a kind of special place in the history of anomalistic psychology <coughs> is that Michael Faraday, the great English physicist, got interested in this. And he decided, and this is great because he was open-minded enough to do it. He wasn't going to dismiss it. He was thinking, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on. And there are two possibilities. I mean, one is that something, some external force, possibly spirits, is moving the table. And the other is that people are moving the table themselves without realising it. So Faraday set up a load of very ingenious experiments. I'll just give you an example of one of them. Instead of people putting their hands directly on the table, he put layers of waxed paper on the table and they put their hands on top of those. Now if the table during the session moves to the right, there's two possible explanations. As I said, one is that uh, a spirit or some external force is moving the table, in which case your hands, the hands of the sitters, would drag behind the table a bit and the wax sheets would be spread out to the left. If they are moving the table without realising it, then the table will drag behind their hands and the wax paper will be spread out to the right. And you can guess what result he found. You know. But uh, there's a nice example of, let's say, what's called the idiomotor effect. It's Ouija boards. Go ahead, you have some of the... How does that all happen when, when there's more than well, it's even more likely to happen then. In the same direction. Yes, yeah. because it's a because it's a kind of it's the it's the kind of collective. I, mean, I know what happens just as I say because I used to do it, and, and it's an amazing kind of. I think it is an illusion, so to speak, you know, and it's a very powerful effect. It feel, have you done it yourself? You, no, no, you're not done it. You wouldn't do it. It feels as if the glass is kind of moving around on its own, and 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 when you know we'd like to spend the whole evening doing. And, and during the evening, virtually everybody at some point in the evening would just kind of take their finger off and just sit back 
to watch is it to say, look, not me, guys, I'm not Christian. <laughs> you know? um, but because you've got a situation where you've got maybe four or five people, and it'll go to one letter, let's say you interpret, you think you think you're spirit, what's your name? And it might go to the letter P. And you immediately, you can't help yourself from the names that begin with P, so it could be Peter, and certainly it then goes to the E, and you're all thinking in the same way, you know. There have been some really nice um, psychological studies that are trying to um, look at this from the point of view of you know, trying to get at what's going on in a properly controlled way. Um, and what they did was to, so if you were taking part in one of these studies, you'd, you'd come along, um, you'd have the basic idea uh, of, uh, how long was it? That, they did explain the basic idea of Ouija boards to people, so that's, we're trying to look at this in a properly controlled way. Uh, so we've got two people here, it's you and someone else, uh, and we're going to kind of basically, you've got it's a, a simplified version, you've got basically like a computer mouse. As, as, the, as, the, as the planchette or the wine glass, um, and you've got a yes and a no response. And you're going to hear questions over earphones that have got simple yes or no answers. And you're not to push the, the planchette, but if you feel it's going in a particular, it is being to move in a particular direction, you can kind of go with the motion, okay? And then you're asked a series of yes no questions with quite straightforward answers, and you, you know, the right answers come up. And then you're asked to judge to what extent were you responsible for the movement versus your partner being responsible for the movement. Uh, what you don't know is your partner is a confederate. They can't hear any of the questions. They've just got white noise coming over their earphones. All of the movement was initiated by you, but people don't think that. They, they think the other person was pushing it. Yeah. And clearly not. It's just it's you responding kind of to the suggestion of which direction to move in without being consciously aware of it. Uh, and it turns out that uh, they did a variation on this where um, they had kind of some more difficult questions. Uh, I think I'm getting this right because it was a long time ago since I read it. But people got more right when they were answering via the Ouija board than when they were answering explicitly on the basis of conscious knowledge, which is a bit weird. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, you mentioned parapsychologists, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you would comment more on your experience with them, because in my past I've had an opportunity when I was working as a journalist to interview some parapsychologists uh, back in America, and it's a very full field, you know? Uh, they have institutes, even academic degrees. It's in both uh, professional and academic explanations. I wonder if you could comment on uh, kind of how you've ever, what your experience is in, in working with them, and yeah, what about their field? I always had a kind of an interest in paranormal. As I say, I used to be a believer in a lot of this stuff. Um, and then when I kind of first discovered the joys of skepticism and kind of started reading around people like you know, James Randi and uh, James Alcott, Ray Hyman, these various other kind of big names, um, I I became what I now look back on and think a bit of a kind of extreme, skeptical extremist. <laughs> I maybe have some views now that I've since modified. So things like, um, pretty much you know, from what I could tell from reading some of, some of this skeptical literature, it seemed that parapsychologists were pretty incompetent. You know, they didn't seem to really know what they were doing. And then actually as I got to know 
parapsychologists. I realise that's just not true at all. You know, they're very often uh, very intelligent people. They know all about stats. They're aware of methodological issues and experimental design. Um, and indeed, in some ways, maybe even more ahead of those kind of issues, on top of those kind of issues, than your average psychologist, you know. Um, I think recently psychology has been catching up a bit in some respects. Um, and so I'm, I've now kind of got this weird situation where I think I'm probably unique amongst sceptics in that I argue that parapsychology is, as far as I'm concerned, a real science, not a pseudoscience, as lots of sceptics would dismiss it. Even though I don't believe in the paranormal, science is about how you go about investigating something. It's a, it's about, it's a method. It's not a collective body of knowledge or facts, you know. And, it can, and you can change your views on things when new evidence comes in. That's, that's how science should work, you know. Um, so I've got, I mean, a lot of respect for a lot of parapsychologists. I mentioned Bob Morris earlier, who used, who's no longer with us, sadly. He was the, uh, the uh, occupant, the first occupant of the Kersler Chair of Parapsychology. And he was a great guy. He was very, very intelligent. He was, he was very aware of all the sceptical counter-explanations. He used to welcome sceptics into his lab and say, if you can see anything you think we're doing wrong, tell us, and we'll try and tighten up on it. You know, a really enlightened approach. Um, and he's the current occupant of the Kirsten Chair of Parapsychology at the Psychology Department in Edinburgh is uh, Caroline Watt who is a very good friend of mine. Um, um, you know, we're actually staying with her this weekend, her and Richard Wiseman. <laughs> and, so that, I mean, that's a, and she's, again, very open-minded. She's, 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 she's probably, she's, she's gotten pretty sceptical, but she's also published stuff that appears to support the idea that maybe paranormal forces are real. It's kind of a you know, nice, balanced approach. So I've got a lot of respect for her, but not for all of them. <laughs> there are some who I think uh, totally kind of um, overstate the case on the other side for all kind of uh, pro-paranormal type explanations. But I, I do, I mean, I get on very well with, with most of them on a personal level. Um, and, and I think that, I think that the vast majority of skeptics have an oversimplified view of you know, of thinking that they, they really just don't know what they're doing. Well, actually, no, a lot of them do. A lot of them are very on the ball. Um, like when you mentioned about the Bali effect, the Bali footage, how like people remember it even though it doesn't exist, it just reminded me of like the Mandela effect. Yes. Um, and like, how like did they like remember it the same? Like that's how what I was wondering. Yeah, no, I mean, do, 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 uh, do, uh, have people not heard of the uh, Mandela effect? If, if, I mean, if you've not heard of it, put your hand up. Okay, right. It's this, this, was some, this was an idea that was first put forward by um, a woman who... Um, she basically had a very clear memory of Nelson Mandela dying while he was still in prison. Maybe that didn't happen. He was released from prison, and you know, um, but she had this very, very clear memory, uh, and she mentioned it to a few people, and she said that she found lots of other people who said, yeah, "I remember that happening as well," um, and so that now her explanation, which I think is possibly the least likely, <laughs> is that this was some kind of evidence for parallel universes, and that some of these in, in another parallel universe, 
Nelson Mandela did die while he was in prison, and that somehow these people had had access, you know, had been in that universe while it happened, and then, you know. Now, but once that idea got out, there were other examples that people came up with of kind of false, shared false memories. And it is quite interesting to try and speculate on where they actually came from. I mean, some of them I think you can um, explain kind of fair, in, in fairly obvious terms. Um, so, for example, there's an example recently of, of something I saw, I can't remember where I saw it now, that, uh, you know, that the chocolate biscuit uh, blue ribbon, I'm going to get it wrong now, blue ribboned, people remember it as being blue ribbon. And it wasn't blue ribbon, but lots of people think it was, because it, I mean, it sounds like blue ribbon is a kind of common phrase, you understand how people might just have never really looked at it properly. The example I gave you, the number of people who would swear that on the clocks and watches that they've looked at, it's IV. Well, no, it isn't. <laughs> but you can see why that might happen. I've got a very, very clear memory of Bob Geldof during the Live Aid concert, um, live on BBC t television, kind of shouting at the viewers, send us your fucking money. <coughs> right? And loads of other people have as well. He didn't ever say it. But loads of people can remember him saying it, including me. He did use the F word, you know, and the live turn, and he was demanding that people send more money in, but he never actually uttered that sentence. But I can see him saying it. <laughs> yeah. um, in fact, we did, I did a, a really interesting project with an artist friend of mine called, we call it the False Memory Archive, where we just got people to send in any examples of their own false memories or people they knew. <clears throat> and it was fascinating. I mean, strictly speaking, we should have called it the Non-Believed Memory Archive. Because it's only a false memory if you actually still think it really happened. If you've realised it couldn't have happened, it's not a false memory anymore. It's still there in your head, it feels the same, but you know it's not real. And this is, this is an area that's been kind of <coughs> getting more attention recently. How do people get these memories? Where do they come from? And there's lots of examples of people um, reporting things happening to them, but it turns out they just saw it in a film happening to somebody else, but they've now decided it happened to them, you know. Um, there's a, I mean, Hillary Clinton famously uh, reported that on a visit to, I think it was Bosnia, as the, as the aeroplane had landed, it was under sniper fire, and her and her entourage had to run to get out of the way. And she was filmed doing it. She got off the plane, and there were children there to meet her. And none of this happened at all, you know. But she actually reported it. And she, you know, she's not a stupid woman. She, she, she just, she just, when she was confronted with this, she said, "Oh, sorry, that's, you know, that is obviously what I remembered. It was a false memory." Up until the point that she acknowledged that we have a non-belief memory. But it can happen to all of us. We've probably all got memories in our heads that we hold quite confidently of things that never actually happened. Yeah. Is anyone will could have one last? I know we'll want to get to Hive and have a good night. Uh, so if you've got one last question, if anyone desperately wants to. All right. Okay. Oh well. Uh, we'll just say thank you. Well, thank you everyone for coming. And thank you to Chris French as well.
Hello, it's Daniel here. Uh, welcome to this episode of the Pondering Primates podcast. Uh, today I'm speaking with Mariam Namazi, who is a British-Iranian secularist and human rights advocate. Uh, she particularly focuses on women's rights under Islam. She is the president... Spokesperson. Of... Let's start again. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I always have a few false starts. No worries. Hello, this is Daniel. Welcome to the Pondering Primates podcast. Today I'm talking to Mariam Namazi, who is a secularist, a human rights activist, and she is the spokesperson for the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain and the One Law for All campaign against Sharia in Britain. Uh, she's just as uncompromising when it comes to far-right racists as she is with Islam. And she, among her many other illustrious positions, is one of the most hated enemies of the Islamic <laughs> Republic of Iran, mm. uh, which has labelled her immoral and corrupt and anti-God. So, trigger warning, if you, if you want to be corrupted, don't listen. Or if you don't want to be corrupted, don't listen. But if you do want to be corrupted, uh, here we go. So, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> is there anything else you want to add to that introduction? No, I think you did quite a good job. <laughs> So I just wanted to ask if you could tell us briefly about your sort of activist work with the Council of Ex-Muslims and One Law for All. And yeah. <laughs> I suppose the work of the Council of Ex-Muslims and One Law for All are linked because mm. it all has to do with opposing different aspects of religious law, theocracy, and uh, in this particular case, Islamic law. Mm. So uh, with the Council of Ex-Muslims, it's challenging apostasy mm. and blasphemy laws. Uh, which are, um, you know, uh, quite dangerous for people who are free thinkers, atheists, ex-Muslims. If you're living in uh, countries uh, with Sharia law, because it is punishable by death, mm. uh, and of course, uh, outside of those countries too, like in Britain, a lot of young people do face shunning, do face ostracization, and also honor-related crimes. Mm. Uh, uh, for leaving Islam or for what's perceived for doing things that are perceived to be blasphemous and of course the campaign against Sharia law is campaigning against the religious courts in Britain mm. uh, because uh, I come from Iran and I see these courts as being very much the same as the courts mm. that are in Iran uh, of course here it doesn't have the um, you know, criminal aspects of Sharia codes, which are stonings and amputations, mm. but it focuses on the civil aspects of Sharia, the family law aspects, mm. uh, which are just as harmful and detrimental, particularly for women's rights, because mm. they're discriminatory, and uh, uh, also they, um, they basically encourage violence against women. And so, you know, I do see these as fighting on various fronts, um, but I think, you know, it's, it's an important fight to have particularly because these religious right movements are in power in many places. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of influence, even in a place like Britain. Yeah. Um, but of course, uh, you know, it's about um, fighting on many different fronts simultaneously. Mm. So I think defending refugee rights, fighting bigotry, uh, defending mm. human rights, these are all something that yeah. come together. Well, that kind of links into my next couple of questions. Um, one was one is quite simply why why do you focus more on Islam than other religions and why do you think uh, you're often smeared with the label as Islamophobic or far right even though you're very strongly against uh, far right racism and bigotry why do you think it's some critics of Islam face this sort of backlash from yeah. 
a lot of people on the liberal left who you may expect to be hmm. some of your strongest allies. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there are people who are against the church's rule uh, and rules, for example, or against mm. the Christian right. No one tells them, why are you focusing only on the Christian mm. right? Why don't you also work against the Islamic right, for example? Or if you're a campaigner against the death penalty in the United States, no one tells you, well, why aren't you campaigning mm. against the death penalty in Iran? The sort of, why, why aren't you doing this and mm -hmm. that always applies to minorities who are yes. fighting against um, the things that are oppressive towards them. And so I think, you know, we can focus on one thing without it being bigoted. I mean, you have people who are gay rights activists and they mm. focus on that. Uh, I was a refugee rights activist for many decades. Uh, you know, now I'm focusing on, uh, again, I think it's linked, but on, on Islam, for example. And I think, you know, given my background, I have a right to do that. I have a duty to do that. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't think that you have to be of a certain background to oppose things that are oppressive and to mm -hmm. defend uh, people's rights and equality. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that it's smeared, um, you know, as being bigoted is... I think a, a victory for fundamentalists because there is this conflation that criticism of Islam and Islamism, which is our religious right, uh, is the same as bigotry and it's not because mm. blasphemy and apostasy are not bigotry and I think uh, it's important not to, um, not to confuse right. the things. Can we stop? Or? Yeah, we could, I'll edit yeah. this out. Sorry, we're recording. Hi, <laughs> yeah, we're just recording you? a couple of questions. Are yeah, you I'm okay? Right. Mariam. Nathan, pleasure. Nathan, nice to see you. It is bad. No, no, no. No, it's okay. It's just a podcast thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I, always, I can always edit it out. Tell me to run away and come back. What time is this meant to start? Seven o'clock. Yeah. You can just sit ah. down if you want. Go start grabbing people. watch for 40 people. minutes. Hmm? Grab people off the streets and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like completely empty. I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh no, is no, that. No, no, we're just. <laughs> well, just you never. The yeah. thing is, you never know. Especially when you go and get the biggest <laughs> hole in the bloody place. Yeah, the the trick is always get the smallest hole so it looks yeah, like yeah, everybody's come I've to see that. me. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for learning it at my expense. Yeah. Oh, no, I've learned it before. Don't oh, you worry. Have. It's okay. And you're still doing but it. I couldn't do it because it was already booked. So I couldn't. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah, the university's got its um, yeah, it would be many uh, levels of uh, a lot of bureaucracy, uh, bureaucracy it would be, to, to do such mm. things. Yeah. No, I will probably run away and come back. Okay. Maybe bring some people up through and it's just yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you put it in our calendar. Tell six, them there's so free beer or something. I don't know. There is yeah, free beer. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Well, we can, we can <laughs> get some. Go, go, go Daniel's some free, some normally, there's normally some vodka in there. <laughs> no, <I> not. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing in there. No, for once, for once, for once. <laughs> right, I'll leave you guys to it. Then, okay. Uh, enjoy your enjoy a little podcast. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry <laughs> for interrupting it. Love it if we kept that in. Just intermission, you know. Right, enjoy. We'll see you at seven then. See you later. So what what were we talking about, God? Oh, about um, it being, uh, yeah, you know, okay, yeah. yeah. And it it does always annoy me, uh, you know, that blasphemy or apostasy against Islam or from Islam are seen to be bigotry. Mm. Uh, whereas it's not the case if, you know, you're an apostate from Christianity or mm -hmm. from Judaism or you're blasphemous against, uh, you know, um, the Bible or mm. saying Jesus has two dads, you know, mm. but if you say similar things in uh, with regards to Islam, it's considered bigotry, and I think yeah. it is a win for the fundamentalists because blasphemy and apostasy have nothing to do with bigotry, mm. and if you think that by silencing uh, blasphemy and apostasy, you're going to win 
the fight against racism, you are sadly misguided yeah. because it has nothing to do, one has nothing to do with the other. Mm. Having said that, of course, there are yeah. uh, far-right movements, white supremacist movements. They're against me as much as they are against people who are Muslims. Mm. They don't see any difference between us. We yeah. all look the same to them. Mm. Anyone that's not them, they're against. Mm. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I'm a migrant. I come from a Muslim family. Um, I'm as uh, uh, opposed to uh, bigotry as uh, any other minority, mm. but that doesn't mean that we can't speak about issues within our so-called communities yeah. and societies uh, that are matters of life and death <coughs> for us, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think it's like any other thing, you fight on many fronts, yeah. you have to do that. It all comes from the same sort of principle, really, is that if you're, if you're a secular, liberal, human rights person, on vaguely on the left, but even if you're sort of moderate right, you know, and you support these uh, very good principles, then you kind of have to be against both the fundamentalists and the far-right racists. Um, and I think one of the problems might be that ceding that ground of criticism of Islam to people like uh, Nigel Farage or whoever, yeah. is a problem, like why not keep it, we should keep it, um, it's a matter that the left should be taken care of. It should be a principle of the left, and we cede definitely. that ground to... Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I think uh, anti-clericalism and criticism mm. of religion is really very much part of, uh, you know, the left, yeah. uh, historically mm -hmm. as well. And I think even, you know, it's not enough for Nigel Farage or mm. uh, Tommy Robinson's. Their criticism is not a real criticism because mm. it comes yeah. from yeah. a perspective that wants to be anti-Muslim, anti-migrant, mm. uh, whereas we're doing it from a perspective where we want equality, mm -hmm. we want human rights, we want secularism. Yeah. And I think that's why we need to speak out and mm. also uh, s close the space for th that they have yeah. to, uh, you know, uh, address these issues yes. because that's yeah. really, we should be addressing them. Mm. So what do you think, do you think there's hope in this fight? Uh, what do you want to achieve with these campaigns and this campaigning? Is the, and do you think it isn't a winnable fight? Because sometimes it feels like it's not. Hello again. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We're Love doing a podcast. We're doing a podcast. It's okay, I can edit this out. Uh, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> so okay. how have you been? You all right? Yeah, good. I think we're almost done, are we? Yes, yeah. well, only, only a couple sorry, more questions. One, oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what Actually, was I'll just the... start that question again. Yeah. Uh, so what, what do you aim to achieve with uh, these campaigns? And do you think it's a battle that can be won? Because sometimes, <coughs> if you look at the news, you think, God, this stuff is never going to go away, all this awful hatred and bigotry. It's never going to end. Really? But, I mean, I also look at the news and I see, um, you know, protests in Lebanon, yes. protests in Iraq, uh, you know, the mm. movement against compulsory veiling in Iran. Uh, I see the <coughs> demand for secularism in Tunisia and Morocco, mm. uh, as well as in Europe. So I kind of feel like actually there's a lot of hope, yeah. you know. And, and Rojava, the, uh, well, mm -hmm. it's yeah. under attack now by the <coughs> Turkish yeah. government, but it is a center of feminism and secularism mm -hmm. in a war zone. So yeah. I think, you know, it depends on how you look at yeah. things. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot to be positive about. Yeah. Um, what worries me is that um, because of identity politics and the fact that um, you know, there's this fight to either um, have your identity considered superior to mm -hmm. others or different from others. Uh, we're moving away from this demand for equality and citizenship rights and universal mm -hmm. rights, yeah. uh, irrespective yeah. of our background. Yeah. But I think, you know, so that's also a major battle, so people can actually see 
struggles elsewhere and how mm. it links with their own struggle and how it actually strengthens, mm. um, you know, uh, our all of our fights yeah. for for uh, human rights. Mm. Well, I was going to mention that uh, the the protests that have been happening in the <coughs> the Arab world or the Muslim world, um, whatever term you want to use. There's all these like Middle East, um, but. Do you think so? Do you think this? Do you think there's more hope? Because some some people are calling it Arab Spring 2.0. Um, I didn't obviously it didn't quite work out last time, mm-hmm. uh, but I well, I agree with you. There's a lot of hope. I read this article recently about Lebanon. Um, you know the the protesters on the streets are denouncing <coughs> traditional uh, community leaders like Shia leaders, mm-hmm. and they're sort of transcending all these sectarian and confessional differences to. To unite in a common cause for secularism and for and uh, and for a better government. Yeah. So yeah, no, I do agree that there is there is hope there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And even uh, in the protests in Iraq, for example, one of the major slogans has been neither Shiism nor Sunnism, but secularism. Mm. So you know, I think if we look at the protests, you can see how. Uh, wrong um, people have been who've said that yeah. you know th- these sort of universal rights or secularism are Western mm. values, and it shows just how much um, they are universal yeah. and how they are something that people are mm. striving for everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think people who live under um, either the rule of the religious right or in societies like in Lebanon where the religious mm. right has a great deal of power. Uh, you know, they understand secularism actually m- much more than people who live yes. in societies yeah. where, uh, even in Britain, <coughs> where it's not a secular society, but it is secularized. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, people take a lot of things for granted. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, which I'm approaching the end of my qu- list of questions. And what what can people do to help if some if anyone's listening to this, and particularly the students, what can they do to help well, um, I mean, your campaigns and these causes? Well, we're always looking for um, students and others who want to support us by either volunteering, becoming activists of mm-hmm. our movement, and uh, highlighting the work that we're doing, talking to others about um, you know, these issues, because they are issues that we need to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to discuss them, air them. There's nothing wrong with speaking about issues that might make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, religion makes me uncomfortable, but I can mm-hmm. manage to listen to people who are religious without either decapitating them or, you know, feeling offended. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's okay to have difficult conversations, and I think we need to um, understand how important that is. You know, yeah. I think sometimes we take things for granted because. Uh, and we won't realize what we have until we lose it sort of thing, mm. you know. So I think just keeping the space open for difficult conversations uh, and also if you feel, you know, strongly about an issue mm. to join us, yeah. uh, you know, not just the Council of Ex-Muslims and One for Law for All, but there's so many other mm. groups out there that really um, are working yeah. for universal rights and for secularism and yeah. we need to support them. Yeah. Well, I think I'll finish off with a nice sort of light question. Um, I'm not sure if you get much free time because you seem like a very busy woman. Uh, but when you do get free time, what's mm. your favourite hobby? What do you oh my God, I do love, to chill? <laughs> I love dancing. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <coughs> my favourite hobby. Yeah. What type? <laughs> Everything. Everything. Oh, I've oh, done yeah. belly dancing. Yeah. Of course, Iranian music. Mm. I'm. Uh, 
I'm learning Bollywood now, oh, and yeah, I, right, I'm going yeah. for tap dancing classes. I'm just like a, a oh, wow. yeah. line dancing. I'm like a dance freak. Oh, lovely. Well, <laughs> is that an exclusive for our podcast? We've got an exclusive on Mariam Namazi's. Uh... Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think we shall end it there. And thank you, I Thank you very much uh, for speaking to me for a few minutes. Thank you. And goodbye. Bye.